Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all, and thank you for giving me that warm connection point welcome. I always feel that way when I'm here like part of the family, and I thank you. And I appreciate Pastor John giving me the opportunity to, as he said on the video, open up this new series leading up to Easter called Prepare the Way. And so I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 9, the Gospel of John chapter 9. We'll be looking this morning at a great story that's recorded there. Recently, I found an old photo that showed my mom and dad, my two older brothers, and me. And yes, I am the little one. I am the happy one. Everybody else in the family looks pretty serious there. But I looked at that and I thought, hey, that's me going, hey, hey, you know, I'm here. And I thought, I don't know if that has been my personality throughout life, but it certainly was when that picture was taken. Now, when you look at that, you'd think, that looks like a nice, happy family. And you might not, but if you saw how we really lived our lives, you might have said, I think they were poor. In fact, Growing up, I thought I was rich because we had a big barn with a basketball hoop in it, and we had a big yard with trees, you know, and lots of places to play and everything. So I felt very well off. But when I became an adult, I looked back and I thought, I don't think we ever had any money. I think we were poor. I didn't really realize it. I felt like we had a lot. But you know, I look back on that, and I remember some of you kids might find this amazing, but our house was not heated all the way in the winter because we couldn't afford to heat the whole house. We heated the main room, the kitchen and the living room where we lived, but the bedrooms that were upstairs where my brothers and I slept at night, we didn't heat those. That was too much money to do that. So it was really, really cold. You could see your breath at night when you breathed outside the covers. It was really cold until the day when my parents gave us for Christmas our own electric blankets. And then I remember my brothers and I developed this little habit that 15 minutes before bedtime, one of us, every night we'd take turns and different brothers would go up and you'd turn on all the electric blankets so that when you went to bed, it was warm and toasty in there. When I'd crawl into that warm bed, it felt like God was enveloping me in his love. It was just great. Now, the rest of the story is, this is many years ago when I was a kid, I've told that story to a few people in my family. At Christmas time, two months ago, there's a package under the tree. It's from my wife. I open it up. You know what it is? My own little electric blanket. Yes, but it makes me laugh. It's only half of one because she doesn't want it on her side of the bed. So I go in every night now, 15 minutes before bedtime, and turn that blanket on, and I crawl in bed, and I just thank the Lord for enveloping me in his arms of love. It's warm and toasty in there. Now, let me just ask you something. When you get up in the morning, do you see evidence of God's love in your life? Do you, as you look through the, the, the world, through your eyes of faith, do you see God's love in action? Do you see him at work in your life? Do you love him back? Do you see him with eyes of faith that say, God, I know that you're at work in my life and I love you for what you do, big and small? It's not always easy to see that, is it, in this broken world? If you look at that family photo closely, you will notice that there are five people in my family and nobody's wearing glasses, right? Everybody had 20-20 vision except 
When I was eight years old, I remember going to a basketball game with my family. I was sitting on the bleachers, and I kept asking my parents over and over again, what's the score? They said, the scoreboard's right there. You can see. I said, what time is it? They said, the clock is right there. And finally, when I was eight years old, I was already in third grade. They finally realized, he can't see. And I've worn glasses since I was eight years old. Now, eyesight is an amazing thing. Can you see clearly? Can you see this chart very clearly? Hopefully, you can at least see the top letter. But then what about this? What about the next one? Can you see that? The, if without my glasses, that's more like I see things. In fact, I, that's better than the way I see without my glasses. Now, you could have 20-20 vision physically. You could see everything just great with your physical eyes, and that's a gift of God, you know, to have the retina and the optic nerve and the pupil and all those things and the rods and cones that enable you to see color. Your eyes, that's an amazing gift from God to be able to have eyesight. Even Charles Darwin in The Origin of the Species admitted that he could not explain the human eye by his theories. But you could have perfect vision physically and still have spiritual blind spots where things look like not like that, but like this, spiritually. If you read the Bible and think this is some boring, old, outdated, old-fashioned religious rule book, and you fail to see the good news of Jesus Christ in here, you've got a big spiritual blind spot. If you're a teenager and you look in the mirror and you hate what you see and you hate, you are not seeing yourself the way God sees you. If you're a married man and you fall in love with another woman, not your wife, and you convince yourself that somehow this is good, you are blind to the damage that your unfaithfulness is going to cause. As a young man, I poured myself into my work thinking I was such a good provider, but I was blind to how much my wife and kids just needed to me, me to be with them and be there for them. So are there any blind spots in your life? We're going to read in John chapter 9 about a man who was born blind. And when Pastor John asked me to teach on this chapter, I began reading and I was stuck with the very first verse because the first verse is so interesting to me. The first verse challenges us, open your eyes to others and their hurts. Open your eyes to others and their hurts. Verse 1, blind from birth, and here's what struck me with that one verse. This chapter is all about a man who could not see, but the first thing it says is that Jesus saw him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus saw the man who was blind from birth. From birth. This man had lived his whole life in total darkness. He had never seen a flower or a tree. He had never seen his own mother's face. He had never seen the food he ate. He could taste it. He could feel it, but he didn't know what it looked like. He couldn't see Jesus, but Jesus saw him. You know, when you are in a very dark place, Jesus sees you. He knows your strengths and weaknesses. He knows your habits, your hang-ups, and your hurts. Jesus sees you. When could have easily walked right by this man, but Jesus saw the man 
who was blind from birth. He saw his hurts. And you see, when you walk with Jesus, Jesus will open your eyes to others and their hurts. When Chris Hodges was serving as a youth minister in Colorado, there was a kid who dressed all in black who showed up at youth group one night and sat in the back row with a sneer on his face, making obnoxious comments throughout the Bible lesson. And finally, Chris told one of the youth workers, get that guy into my office after this service. And when they met in the office, the young man still had an irritating smirk on his face, and Chris glared at him, and he leaned in, and he said, bro, what is your deal? And the young man turned around and pulled up his shirt and showed him that his back was covered with red scars. It turns out, leading him. And the young man said in a quiet voice, this is my deal. And Chris says, in one second, my anger dissolved into compassion, and we immediately began the process of working with him and his family. Here's a quote I have found to be true. I sat with my anger long enough until she told me her real name was grief. Usually people act badly because they've been hurt badly. We need to open our eyes and see others in their hurts. That's what Jesus did. Jesus saw the man who couldn't even see him. Now next, verse 2, we see another principle. Open your eyes to the world and its brokenness. Look at verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that he was born blind? Now, we may say it differently, but we all ask questions like that. Why do bad things happen? Whose fault is this anyway, this suffering? Why did 3,000 innocent people die on 9-11? Why did a hateful man kill 51 people in New Zealand last week? Sometimes our questions are very personal. I ask them myself, why was my son born with cerebral palsy? Why was my daughter going through a miscarriage a few years ago. My son-in-law, who's a doctor, caring for people, healing them, why did he get cancer? By the way, I want to thank you because a year ago or so I preached here, I told you about my son-in-law and asked for your prayers, and so many of you have told me that you've been praying for him. He had surgery. It looks like he's going to be okay. But he's been through a really rough time. Thank you for your prayers. I'm grateful for that, my son-in-law, but I have another young friend. I performed his wedding a few years ago. He's 38 years old, now has four kids. He served faithfully our country in the armed forces. He was in the, in the military in Iraq, and now he's fighting life-threatening cancer himself. And you can't help but ask why. I have another friend of mine who retired, and he and his wife were looking forward to traveling and doing all these fun things that they had never had time for in their life, and then they had a car accident a few weeks ago, and now he can't use his arms or his legs. And I say, why? Now, in Jesus' day, many people believed that if you were sick or you suffered some kind of a calamity, it, was, it had to be because you were guilty of a specific sin and you were being punished for that. That's why the disciples asked this question the way they did. But notice, this man that they encountered was born blind. So how could that be his fault? He was born this way. His mother's womb before he was even born? Or was it his parents' fault? Did God punish them by making their son be born blind? 
You remember Job in the Old Testament, he asked questions like this. Job was a righteous man who believed in God, but he suffered one disaster after another. He lost his kids, his property, and his health, and he had some friends who came to comfort him, but they broke every counseling rule in the book. And if you read the book of Job, a lot of what they say is questioning him and pointing the finger of blame at him and saying, Job, you better evaluate yourself, man, because somehow this is your own fault. And Job's like, I don't think so. Well, why do bad things happen? Well, we can illustrate the causes of suffering with a little pie graph, a little pie chart. Sometimes the problem is me. <laughs> Sometimes I am to blame for the things that I brought on myself. We reap what we sow. If you are selfish, don't be surprised when you have relationship problems. If you eat too much, your health may suffer. If you are greedy or lazy, you're likely to have money problems. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. But not all suffering can be explained this way. Sometimes we suffer because others sin. A drunk driver takes a life on the highway. A corrupt boss makes everybody's life miserable at work. A terrorist kills a crowd of innocent people. A sexual predator abuses a child. It is not the child's fault. When my family lived in New York, we came home one evening and found that somebody had broken into our house as if we had a lot of stuff to take. The detective later showed us the guy had stolen a pillowcase from our bed. He said, you know, if I see somebody walking down the street with a pillowcase, I know they've upped into something that's not good because he stashed the loot in the pillowcase. And he had taken jewelry that we had, and we had all we had was stuff that didn't have a lot of monetary sentimental value, silver dollars that my grandpa had given me. Class rings my wife and I had exchanged when we were dating, and somebody out there to this day has my stuff. We suffered, our family suffered, because somebody sinned against us. You remember King Herod? He was a fearful guy, a paranoid guy, and a powerful guy. And when he heard that somebody was born who was going to be called the king of the Jews, he was jealous, he was paranoid, and he ordered that families who had baby boys under age two in the whole Bethlehem area would have to have that kid killed. What an awful thing. Families suffered because an evil ruler made an evil decision. Maybe you've suffered in your life because of bad choices that other people have made. And sometimes we can say, well, it's just nature taking its course. Now, according to the book of Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth, everything he made was good. In fact, he pronounced it very good in its original state. There were no tornadoes in the Garden of Eden, but Adam and Eve sinned, and ever since, the earth has been under a curse. People die. Natural laws are out of whack. What God created for good is messed up. Romans chapter 8 says that the universe is going through labor pains like a woman getting ready to give birth. And so nature can be beautiful but can also be cruel. And the problems won't be fixed until we get to heaven. Just because we believe in God, we aren't exempt from accidents and storms and sickness. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But he went on to say, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, also, there are times when suffering is directly the fault of the devil. Job suffered because Satan attacked him. Read in Luke chapter 13, Jesus healed a woman who had back problems, and he said that Satan had held her captive for 18 long years. 
The apostle Paul, a faithful servant of God, had a thorn in the flesh, some kind of ailment or disability that he called a messenger of Satan to afflict him. This doesn't mean that every time you suffer, it's a direct act of the devil, but Satan is real. He is our enemy. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan wants to use our suffering to make us reject God. And sometimes, as Christians, we recognize that the pain we go through in life is actually a result of God's discipline, that God is working on us to help us be refined and stronger in our faith. You know, when I was a boy, I remember sometimes getting into trouble, and sometimes my parents would allow me to face the consequences of my poor decisions. Maybe you've had parents like that. If I didn't want to wear a sweater in the morning, they'd say, okay, go to school without it. And then I was cold all day. They weren't hating me, being mean to me. They were actually loving me enough to teach me to make wise choices. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 talks about the love of God that way. It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children for what children are not disciplined by their father. But let's be honest. You can go through this little circle that I just gave you, and you can go through all the possibilities, and sometimes you ask it all, but you get down to the end, and you say, I just don't know why. I don't know why. A friend of mine recently had a close brush with death, and I called him the other day to see how he was doing, and he said, Dave, I have been asking myself, did I do something to bring this on? Is God trying to teach me something? He said, to tell you the truth, Dave, I really, I don't know. But he said, I'll tell you this, my faith in God has never been stronger. Whatever the reason, whatever caused these hard things to come on me, he said, my faith in God is strong. And for that, he said, I praise the Lord. Folks, in this fallen world, we are not exempt from suffering because we believe in the Lord. Jesus was perfect. Jesus never sinned. And yet nobody's ever suffered more than he did on the cross. And let me tell you, if you wonder about the problem of evil, do not use your questions about this as an excuse to turn away from God. If you reject the Lord, it will not make things better because atheism offers no comfort. Unbelief offers no hope. In God is our hope. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to reverse the effects of of sin, even if it doesn't happen the way we want or as fast as we want. He calls us to be honest and open our eyes to the world and its brokenness, but knowing that that's not the end of the story. And if you reject God, where are you going to find comfort? Where are you going to find hope? Where are you going to find the answers that you desire? The thing I love about God is he doesn't leave us there wallowing in our misery. Jesus says to open your eyes to God and his work. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered the disciples' question by saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned. It's not that simple. Like, this guy did something wrong, and therefore that's why he's born blind, or his parents are... No, Jesus said, neither one. Neither one. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Some translations say, so that God will be glorified in his life. So even though Jesus didn't fully answer the why question, he focuses on the fact that God is still able to do his work and display his glory in this man's life. 
And we need to think about that. I have a friend named Roy, Roy Mays. He died of cancer in his 50s. He had strong faith. And as he went through this whole process with the Lord, he came up with a simple illustration. He said, it's like the two rails of a railroad track. And he called those two rails healing and dealing. He said, I pray for God's healing grace because I believe that God has the power to heal. But if God does not heal me, then I pray for God's dealing grace, that he will give me the strength to deal with it, to deal with it and be strong in my faith even when my troubles have not gone away. And I want to tell you, you can see God's glory if you have the eyes to see it. You can see God's glory on both sides of that. God answers a prayer the way we would desire and heals us. Yes, we see God's glory in that, but we can also see his glory in the strength he gives us to deal with our disappointment and our pain. You can see God's glory in a sunrise, beautiful colors in the sky, but you know what? If you look for it, you can also see God's glory in the relief workers who show up to help clean up the mess after a hurricane or a tornado has gone through. Haven't you seen that before? The, the workers, the glory of God in those who show up and help. You can see God's glory in a great play on the basketball court. I do. I mean, I, I watch the March Madness. I watch the, the basketball teams, and I, I see somebody do a slam dunk, and I think, I could never do that. But that's a beautiful thing, man. That is the glory of God displayed in that basketball play. I see God's glory in that, but you know what? I also see God's glory vividly in the family that perseveres, though their child will never run or jump or stuff a basketball in, a, in, the, in the net. I see God's glory in their dealing as well as in the healing. Jesus revealed his glory, we're going to see, by healing this blind man. But I also see God's glory in my friend Marvin, who is blind. And Marvin would say his purpose in life is to give glory to God. He sings and plays the piano and leads worship in church, and he plays the piano beautifully, even though he can't see the keys. I can see the keys, and I can't play as well as Marvin. I see God's glory in him. I see God's glory in Johnny Erickson Tata. Maybe you've heard of her. She was paralyzed in a swimming accident, but became a successful author, speaker, and artist who paints beautiful artistry by holding the paintbrush in her teeth. Fanny Crosby was blind, but she wrote more than 8,000 songs, including many great hymns of the church. God was glorified in her life. Rick Ashley says, sometimes us from the fire, sometimes he delivers us in the fire, and sometimes he just delivers us unto himself. One time, about a year ago, I had the opportunity somewhere else to teach about John chapter 9. I was talking about the problem of evil and suffering and all this there was a guy sitting in the, in the class that I was teaching who I have a great respect for. His name is Jim, and Jim is a lawyer, but Jim is a man of deep faith. He's a man of deep prayer, and I, I admired this. I knew his, he had a lot of spiritual depth, but I didn't know his story. And after I talked about the man in John 9 and the question about whose fault is it, he sent me an email the next day, and with his permission, I want to share with you a little bit of Jim's story. When he was five years old, his dad was the chief surgeon at Ball Hospital in Muncie, Indiana, and his mom was a nurse. And when Jim was five years old, his dad was flying a private plane to a medical convention in New York, and the plane crashed, killing Jim's mom and dad and his oldest brother. 
He and his remaining three brothers and sisters went to live with a cousin. They moved to Indianapolis and started a new life. Well, Jim had attended the Bible class and studied John chapter 9 with me, and he sent me this email, and he said, For a number of years during and after law school, I would often wonder why God allowed this accident, why I had lost my parents and oldest brother with hardly a memory of any of them. As I got older and learned of my parents' strong faith and walk with the Lord, as well as the faith of their niece, the cousin who adopted us, I realized how blessed my brothers and sister and I were to remain in a family that practiced their faith openly. And over a period of time, I was able to finally let go of all the questions of why and to simply accept that accidents happen, there doesn't always have to be someone or something at fault, and most importantly, God always brings good from bad things. He said, I've experienced a closeness with my older, wiser brothers and my precious sister who taught me unconditional love that I may never have known but for the circumstances we all went through. It all has left me with a peace I spent a number of years chasing and a limitless gratitude for the ways and the love of our God. And it reminds me on a regular basis to surrender my will and let the work of God be displayed in whatever manner he chooses in my life. Now, if Jim were here today, he'd be the first to tell you this is not easy and this hasn't come easily to him. But I want to tell you, God is being glorified in his life. We may never understand on this side of heaven all the whys of suffering, but we can open our eyes to God and his work. And most of all, open your eyes to Jesus and his love. Here in John 9, in verse 5, Jesus says, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, that's a big thing to claim, to say, I am the light of the world. So if you're going to claim something big like that, you know a great way to demonstrate that it's true? Heal a man who is blind as evidence that you are indeed the light of the world. So after saying this, according to verse 6, Jesus spit on the ground. I like his creativity here. I mean, Jesus could have healed any number of ways. He could have just said the word. He could have touched him. But he spits on the ground, makes some mud with the saliva, and puts it on the man's eyes. And then Jesus tells the man to go and wash in a pool called Siloam. You can still visit that pool in Jerusalem to this day. Its other nickname was Sent, S-E-N-T, because they evidently sent water down through an aqueduct, and it ended up in this pool of Siloam. So Jesus spread mud all over this man's face. You know what he was doing? He was requiring this man to put his hand to do something. Because he was going to be having mud all over his face until he washed it off and did what Jesus asked him to do. So he found his way to the pool. He washed his face in, in the water. And suddenly, for the first time in his life, this man could see. Can you imagine? He could see his food. He could see his mom. He could see his friends. He could see himself in a mirror. He could see Jesus for the first time. Verse 7 says, he came home seeing. And then I love verse 8. It kind of makes me chuckle a little bit. It says, his neighbors asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Let me just pause there and point out, when Jesus changes your life, your neighbors will notice the difference. This man came home and his neighbors are like, wait a minute, this can't be the same. Who is this? This is the same guy that we've been seeing sitting and begging all his life and now wait a minute, what's going on? But you know, there are always some naysayers around, some critics who can only see the bad side of things. Through John chapter 9, you'll find out there were some people who weren't happy about that. 
because Jesus did it on the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath day, according to the Old Testament, was a day of rest. You weren't supposed to work. But the Pharisees and a lot of their hypocritical friends had narrowed this down with human traditions that defined what work was on the Sabbath, and they got mad at Jesus because, hey, you made mud. That's work. You're not supposed to do that. And you healed somebody. That's work. You're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. So instead of seeing the big picture that says, man, his life had been miraculously transformed by Jesus, the glory of this man who'd never seen a thing in his life, and now he can see for the first time, all they could see was Jesus had broken one of their traditions, and they were really upset about this. So first, they bring in the blind man's parents. Now, follow along. If you have your Bible open here, just listen as we read through this. It's a great narrative here in John 9, starting with verse 19. So they bring in the parents. And they said, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? And the parents answered, well, we know he's our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So didn't work real well with the parents, so now they bring the man back in. A second time, they summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner, meaning Jesus. Can you imagine calling Jesus a sinner? They didn't know Jesus was a sinner. They were assuming something about him. The man replied, I love this guy. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I love this guy. It's just common see, open your eyes. He answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I love this guy. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And listen, listen now, the wisdom of this man who had been blind and now he can see. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's right. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. This guy has had some day, hasn't he? a thing in his life, he encounters Jesus who enters into his darkness and opens his eyes so that he can see. And then he gets scolded, criticized, insulted, and eventually kicked out because he's aligning himself with Jesus. You know something I love about this? The very next verse, verse 35 says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and when he had found him. Isn't that interesting? When you feel like everybody's rejecting you and you've been kicked out and you've been scorned by others, Jesus comes looking for you. Jesus searches and finds you. Jesus has open arms to you. And Jesus said to the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. And then verse 38 says, then the man said, Lord, he worshiped him. Folks, here's a great question for us as we prepare for the Easter season. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you really? 
Will you fall down and just worship him and confess your faith in him? I knew a man named Dan Einan. He's a Bible teacher for many years. And when his wife died, I went to the funeral, stood in line at the visitation. And maybe you've done this before. When you go to a funeral and you're standing in line thinking, what am I going to say when it's my turn? You get just a few moments to speak to the person. You want to express your condolences. What am I going to say? And I walked up to him and I just took his hands. I said, Dan, I know you loved her. I know you're going to miss her. I'm so sorry for your loss. Now, he'd been a teacher of the word of God, a preacher of the gospel for many years. He looked back at me and he said, oh, Dave, I'm going to miss her. Of course, I'm going to miss her so much. But he looked at but I want you to know something. I have not been preaching fairy tales all these years. I loved what he said. Because the message of Jesus is not a fairy tale. You know, actually now when I stand in line at funeral visitations, I often, that's what I say to the people. When I have a chance to try to offer a word of encouragement and comfort, to say, we've not been preaching fairy tales all these years. What we believe is real and what we believe is true. We live in such a messed up world. It's filled with so much heartache. Yes, it is. The Bible's honest about that. But Jesus isn't a fairy tale. His death, burial, and resurrection are not just some once-a-year holiday. Jesus' resurrection makes every day different. So who will you align with in John chapter 9? Will you align with the disciples who are just hung up on their questions about all this bad stuff that happens in the world and whose fault is it? Align with the Pharisees who are prideful and critical and analytical but not believing? Or will you align with the blind man and say, you know, there are a lot of things I don't fully understand about Jesus, but I know he has the power to change a life because he's at work changing mine. And I believe in him and I will worship him with all my heart. This blind man didn't have all the answers. He barely understood who Jesus was, but he knew that this wasn't a fairy tale. He believed, and he came to Jesus with faith and worship. Have you heard about Richard Overton? Richard Overton died in December, just right after Christmas, at the age of 112. Richard, at the time he died, was the oldest man in America when he died in Texas. He had served in World War II, and on Veterans Day in 2013, President Obama honored him in a ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery. But here's the best part of the story. Richard Overton accepted Christ and was baptized when he was 107 years old. He said, I thought it was about time to make that decision. <laughs> now, I don't recommend waiting till you're 107. You don't know that you're going to live to be 112. But I highly recommend that you make that decision soon if you haven't because it's not a fairy tale. And the one person who can help us make sense out of this crazy world and give us hope now and forever is Jesus Christ. That's why I love, there's a little old chorus, maybe you've heard it before, that goes like this. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch you. 
and say that we love you. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus. Lord God, that is our prayer. We want to see your son, Jesus. Open our eyes of faith so that our vision is not blurry anymore, but clear. Help us by faith to worship you, to embrace you, to follow you and serve you with all our hearts. Use this season leading up to Easter, Lord, to deepen our faith and to open our eyes to others around us and their needs, to the world and its brokenness and the difference that the gospel can make. And Lord, I pray this morning for anyone who is here, who has heard this message, who has been struggling with why there are so many bad things in the world or why you have allowed bad things to happen to them. Help us, God, in full faith and surrender to you to trust you and place our hope in you. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord, for helping us by your healing grace and by your dealing grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to a very important time in the service and as the servers bring the bread and the cup for the Lord's Supper, we invite you to take these simple elements and hold them until everybody's been served so that everybody can participate and partake together. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, remembering his body as we partake of the bread, remembering his blood shed on the cross as we partake of the cup. This is a time when Christians all over the world come together in unity, in faith, hope, and love. Use this time for prayer, self-examination, and to remember the Lord Jesus and all that he has done for you.